Hello, my name is Alan Marks and welcome to a new wintry edition of Leadership Matters here in our, our new office in, uh, in downtown Sydney. I'm joined today as always by my partner in crime, Alan Parry. Hello, Alan. Hello, Alan. You're getting some sleep now back with your newborn son, the World Cup over? Yeah, uh, three and a half weeks in and mother and child doing well, father a bit bleary-eyed, <laughs> but, but surviving, thank you. That's good, that's good. Well, our very special guest today is Martin Dalglish. Hello, Martin. Good afternoon. Alan and Alan. And Alan. Welcome. <laughs> if Martin was an airline pilot, he would fly very long distances under the radar. He is without doubt one of Australia's foremost technology investors, entrepreneurs, board directors, and disruptors within the business world. Starting within technology within IBM, Martin has worked with PepsiCo, the very famous Dixons Group in the UK up the Edgware Road, and with Optus, the latter as head of the consumer division. He then became the chief executive of New Media for the Packer Empire, before moving into a range of roles, mostly as a non-executive director and investor in companies that are in startup or development phases and increasingly a disruptive, entrepreneurial and have innovative technology requiring business experience and leadership gained from years of experience in similar stage investment and growth. Um, Martin operates primarily in the private and non-listed sector and is able to grow businesses out of the glare of the public markets. Welcome, Martin. Well, terrific. Thank you. You, you can be my agent. <laughs> <laughs> that was quite an intro, Alan. Oh, oh, I, 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 I might. Can I just have that <laughs> spiel again? I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Yeah. I wrote it last night, actually, after a, a bottle. A, a, a few lines, a few waters. Yeah. Anyway, so... The first question I have for you, actually, was not on the list of questions we sent you, but how oh. does your wife feel when you're termed as a disruptor? Oh, <laughs> my wife has absolutely no idea what I do, right? She, <laughs> she just thinks it's all terrifically interesting. And, you know, I come back and I go, oh, we've invested in this company and we're doing that and doing this. And she just, it's like a blur to her, right? <laughs> and she goes back to doing her painting, which is what she loves which doing. Which is good. Which is good. Mm. So I get to, get to ask the traditional first question, Martin, and that is, uh, we want to know a little bit more about your first job, what you did, and sure. if you can remember it, and you know what you what you got out of it. I can remember my life actually with incredible uh, clarity, funnily enough. So yeah, I do remember my first. I mean, obviously my first job, my first full time job, first part time job. The first part time job was being a Bowser boy at the old local uh, petrol station, right? So. Remember those days when people used to put the petrol yeah. in the car for you? Yeah. yeah. Pump up the tyres? Yeah. Check the oil and water? I, I did get admonished one day because I managed to put the uh, oil in the brake fluid container. <laughs> um, that wasn't very sensible, so um, I think I was sacked at that point, but anyway. It's uh, called Yeah, whoops. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, very good. So, first full time opportunity was really out of university. So, my, my degree was uh, in Perth. Yeah. Um, at a institution which is now called Curtin University, yeah. but in the old days it was called the West Australian Institute of, of Technology, yeah. WAIT, as it was abbreviated. There was some humour that it was going to be called the Institute of Technology and Commerce, but that would have been WAIT and C, which is not a very good acronym. <laughs> um, so my degree in computer uh, technology, computer programming, in the days when actually, frankly, yeah. most people weren't even thinking about that, right? So we're yeah. talking 1982 to 1984. Uh, I joined IBM uh, in their graduate uh, program. Um, it's an interesting story, Alan, because I thought I was joining IBM for life, of course, because that's what you did in that era, right? You mm. decided yeah. who you were going to work for. And did you wear a blue suit? I had a blue suit, white shirt, red tie. <laughs> red tie. <laughs> uh, in classic, uh, you know, it was never written, but it was, un, uh, you know, it was just always assumed. 
Um, so I joined in their program, ostensibly actually in their technical and engineering team, but it was about two weeks in when they actually pulled me aside and said, I think you should be in the marketing stream. And I said, why is that? And they said, well, because you clearly enjoy talking, which was a good thing. Um, anyway, they convinced me because they told me that if I'm in the marketing stream, that after I get through that program, I'll get a company car. And I was like, I'm done. <laughs> what, what type of car am I getting? So, um, so I joined as effectively a, a year, a terrific program, what they called the um, the IBM, I had a name for it, I can't remember the acronym, but um, so we did a year of training. Yeah. Um, you know, typically they would take two to three hundred people a year in that program. Wow. I'll show you how, yeah. how um, uh, deep that program was in that era. And then we were kind of let loose. So I ended up with uh, IBM for about five years. Yeah, yeah. And did that then create the segue for you into media and telco? Or no, 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 no. Did no. It, you, know, you look back at that and you say, well, you know, they gave me some foundational skills that yeah. let me progress down that route. Even you know, we... I, I can, I can, in hindsight, I can fill that story in like that, but actually how it happens is not like that okay. at all, right? So how it happens is almost like serendipity moments and... I mean, I've had more career changes than, than, than Arsenal have won EPLs, right? I mean, which is not many, right? <laughs> um, so, actually, I don't even know how many that is, but I'm sure it's right. So, Slightly behind Liverpool. Okay, well, there you go. Thank you. Um, so, you know, terrific grounding, mm-hmm. a terrific enterprise, and, uh, I mean, really solid five years. Probably stayed on a year or two too long, but, you know, in, 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 you know, in the long run, that doesn't matter, right? So, so I left there after five years. I'm a relatively high risk guy, so you know I'm always one for going. Okay, this this is proven to be very useful for me, but it's not where I want to continue in my career. So I resigned, and my wife at the time was working for IBM, and she was posted to North Carolina for wow. a six month um, program. So I literally jumped on a plane, spent a bit of time just traveling around the U.S., and I went over to Europe for a while, and and did all the things that you do when you're in your sort of mid twenties at that age, and. And I was starting to uh, deploy my scarce resources and thought I better come back and get a job again. So, um, so here's a serendipity moment, right, to describe that. I'm at the airport at Heathrow coming back to Australia and I need something to read. And so I'm in the bookshop and I read the book from uh, John Scully, uh, which was about Pepsi to Apple. Or Apple Pe- I can't remember the order, but I thought oh, I'd better read that. And in that book, there was really colourful testimony to the whole PepsiCo culture. And I thought, what a terrific company. Wow, I'd love to be in PepsiCo, right? I get back to Australia, and I'm not kidding you, the next day I've got the AFR, and there's a job ad there for the marketing director for Pepsi in Western Australia. And it's like, okay, well, that clearly is a, it's an omen, right? And it talked about, you know, you must have five years of FMCG experience, and, which I had none of. The recruiter was a guy called Miff James. I don't know if you know Miff. Oh, no, um, and I called Miff and I said, uh, Miff, I'm nothing that you've asked for, but I'm everything you need. So how about we get together? And he said, well, that's ridiculous, but okay, we'll get together. And it ended up, I ended up at PepsiCo. So I spent the better part of three years in an amazing company. Mm. Uh, one of the most enjoyable um, stanzas in my, in my career. But like all things, you know, you keep moving. So after three years in PepsiCo, I ended up uh, for a brief period of time working um, in a a travel and uh, tourism uh, organisation in Perth, but then I went over to the UK uh, to do a one-year MBA uh, in my kind of mid-30s, which I think is a good time to do it for anyone who is thinking about executive education. I chose to do a one-year program rather than a two-year program in Australia, and I chose to do that in Europe rather than the US. And of course, that places you over there, so once you conclude that program, there are opportunities that get presented to you 
in the UK and European markets. So we were with our children at that point and my wife was pretty happy living there. So we stayed on. And, and so we, um, the first role I took was with the Rank uh, organisation. Oh, yeah. You guys remember the, yeah, the top rank, rank, uh, rank yeah. Arena, Rank yeah. Xerox. Yeah. Um, the Man with the Gong. The Man with the Gong, Gong Man, as they called him. So they were also the biggest uh, leisure company in Europe. Um, and when I talk leisure, I'm talking about holidays. But when I'm talking about holidays, I'm talking holiday parks. And you gentlemen are both from the UK, so you know uh, of Butlins. Yeah, that's And right. you probably have heard of a brand called Haven. And there was also a brand called Centre Parks. The there you go. <laughs> so, so we own Butlins and Haven and Centre Park and um, Caravan Parks in the far north of Scotland and in the far southwest. And and be fascinating. So I was sales and marketing director, director of that for about two and a half years. Terrifically interesting business. And from there, sorry, this is a very long-winded answer to your question. Uh, I got headhunted to go to Dixon's, as you mentioned, so the biggest consumer electronic retailer in uh, UK, now Europe, um, as marketing director for the Dixon's group. And, you know, well, I hadn't done retail before. So, so my journey now has gone from technology to FMCG to leisure hotels to retail. So I'm just, you know, jack of all trades, really, at this point. But there's a thread of commonality across all of that. So it was really marketing and um, commercial uh, partnering. It was that that I was building that profile and skill. So when we eventually determined to come back to Australia in the late 90s, uh, when our first child was due, we felt it would be better to uh, come back to a family environment. Um, I wasn't sure what I'd do at that point. I was thinking about whether I could start something or mm. another role uh, in the marketing sphere would come about and I got approached from uh, another recruitment firm on Optus. Mm. So hence where I joined as marketing director for Optus at that period, which was only for about three months, by the way, and then ultimately that all changed as well. Gosh, okay. So to keep on, I'll keep going on no, that story. No, 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 it, it's probably pretty interesting, actually. So, so Optus at that point was owned by Cable and Wireless, and um, three months into my, uh, into my role there, the acquisition from Singtel was announced, and the managing director mm-hmm. of the consumer business, a guy called Adrian Chamberlain, was a Cable and Wireless secondee, and um, he determined he'd go back to, to the mothership. So um, after three months in the business, Chris Anderson, the CEO of Optus at the time, tapped me on the shoulder and said, I'd like you to act as managing director. And, and, and I remember having the conversation like, Chris, what are you, I've been here for three months. I've, I wouldn't know I've switched from a router, from a, from, a, you know, from a wireline to a wireless. I'm still trying to get my mind around this industry. This is a big business. At one point, my division was a $1.7 billion, 4,000 people. I said, look, I'm happy to mind it for a while, but go and get yourself, you know, a proper managing director and I'll go back to the marketing role quite happily. And yeah, long and short is that didn't quite happen and I ended up taking that role on a permanent basis and spent uh, a really, a really uh, compelling and interesting four years there. Amazing. Gosh. Yeah. Well, I didn't expect that answer, listeners. <laughs> um, but what a fulsome answer that is. Sorry, fulsome is my nature. Um, so from there, I, uh, I uh, moved to the media industry. Yeah. And again, actually, Chris Anderson, who I just mentioned, um, was the catalyst for that too, because he'd, he was um, on the board there, he, he'd, he'd retired from Optus as CEO, and he joined the board of PBL. Mm. Um, and I, I had a moment, actually, this is an interesting story where, um, I'm sure it may be interesting to some of the listeners, where I had a, a family health issue, and, and my son, who became quite ill, and so I had to take some time off because he was in intensive mm. care for quite a period of time. And it's a great opportunity for reflection. And, you know, I was in my, well, I probably would have been about 39, 40 at that point. 
And I just found that what I was doing wasn't fulfilling me anymore. And I was in the machine. The machine was moving. I was very well compensated. I had you know, big accountabilities. We were winning um, you know, largely in everything we were aiming to do. But I just didn't have that sense of fulfillment. But it, it took a, an external event to kind of break the, mm. break the nexus a little bit. And I came back from um, some parental leave when, when my son came out of hospital and was on the road to recovery. And, and I resigned. Uh, and I had no idea at that point what I would do next, but I just knew I needed to do something mm. new at that point. Mm-hmm. And Chris um, approached me and said, well, you know, I'm uh, on the board of PBL now and I'd like you to come and meet uh, Kerry and Jay. So, I mean, you can't say no to that, right? So I did and uh, ended up into the PBL uh, business on the back of that of that mm. suggestion. Okay. Can I, can I sort of break the thread for a minute, Alan? Sure. I'm kind of just thinking we've got a load of questions here, but we're probably unlikely to get through very many of them. But I, I really wanted to ask about this, this entrepreneurial strand. You, you kind of called it risk at the top of the conversation. And I was just thinking about your career progression and whether you've reflected on whether that's something that you have within your personality or whether that's actually something that you've learned from somebody else. Uh, no, I would say I am a, a very risk-positive personality, and, and that's reflected in um, my career and my career choices and also my investment decisions, which sometimes pays off and sometimes doesn't, uh, but it also reflects a little bit in my private life. You know, I've been, um, as an example, I've competed in, uh, in rallying, rally driving at a, at a very uh, you know, reasonably high level, uh, which is a pretty high-risk activity. So I think that's a manifestation of my behaviour, which yeah. is, a, a, you know, I'm a, quite an outgoing personality and, and I like to push the boundaries a little bit. So, uh, so I think that's the answer. Yeah. It's, just, it's an innate characteristic. I've had to temper that a little bit as my career unfolds to make sure I don't over egg the omelette, yep. to use the phrase. Um, sometimes you get that right, sometimes you get that wrong along the way. But my nature and, and, and um, the experience I bring and a question that gets asked of me a lot by people who look for me for some mentoring advice is, you know, if you think that there's an opportunity and there's a degree of uncomfortableness about that, sometimes you need to just jump in and, and, and go and have a bit of a no regrets view about that in mm-hmm. terms of what can happen. Well, that segues quite nicely to one of the questions we wanted to ask you. So, Martin, you're involved in a wide um, array of different businesses and mostly disruptive businesses these days. Uh, potentially there's a, a market leader or two coming coming through and they're all very technologically driven. What's the best message you have for uh, those people starting up businesses today who have got ideas and want to develop a business, how to actually get it off the ground and make it work? Yeah, uh, well, I'd always encourage anyone who has an idea to, uh, to, to go for it, right? So first step is um, to do that, but do that in a very kind of mitigated and, and controlled fashion. So I've seen over the years people start businesses with a big ambition but falter along the way for a whole bunch of reasons. But the usual first starting point is making sure you've got a product or a service that actually has a market and, and there is demand for that. So um, for anyone uh, interested, there is a very excellent book called Startup Focus and it's written by uh, two people that I've met over the years, uh, Phil Maul and uh, Mike uh, Miklobinskis. So they used to run a um, technology accelerator company called Pollinizer. And, and the key is focus, right? So making sure that if you've got a business idea and you're looking to start, particularly a technology company, a disruption company, understand your product or your service, understand the market opportunity and start with something 
what they often term as the minimum viable product. Start with something small, don't put too much capital to play, don't perfect it, get it in and learn and start iterating your way through that. So you'll very quickly sense whether you've got something which can get traction or not. And if the answer is no, then we haven't wasted too many cycles mm. doing it. But if you do get some traction, then you can start scaling from that. The book that I just referred is a, is a really simple methodology for, for entrepreneurs, budding entrepreneurs, to work their way through that cycle in a very controlled fashion. Mm. So my, my encouragement would be for people to do that. Obviously, typically along the way, you need teams and you need capital. Mm. Um, capital in the Australian market in the last three years has uh, significantly increased, uh, particularly um, now with uh, probably close to 30 venture capital funds in the Australian market with about 1.3 billion of capital raised in the last year and a half. So if you've got a good idea in Australia, likely you will get funded. If you've got a bad idea, likely you won't, right? And if people aren't funding you, there's probably a reason for it. So it can be done now. It's relatively easy to find um, and get access to those funds. It's relatively easy to get funded, but you've got to do that in a nice progressive fashion. Should people be put off if they've had a failure? Whereas no, in not America, no. it seems to be quite common and uh, desired. Whereas yeah, it's a flag, isn't it? It's 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 a flag, it's a flag of, of success. It seems to be frowned upon. No, we we're very comfortable as investors. We are very comfortable with with um, understanding people's history, and you know, as long as the failure has been managed in a uh, you know moral, ethical. Uh, considered fashion, you know, with good respect to creditors, good respect to stake uh, to shareholders and, mm. and, and other stakeholders along the way, fine, mm. you know. What did you learn from that? Yeah. What can you take forward into your next opportunity? Yeah. Mm. I mean, uh, to me, it's like it almost, it almost adds to the, um, the, the, the collateral, if you like, of the capability of the founder or the yeah. entrepreneur. Yeah. Switching the topic from the, uh, the entrepreneur to the board, Martin, the role of the board, what's the biggest agenda issue of the boards today and tomorrow? Yeah, um, I think we're going through a... It's probably a different answer, public or private. Maybe. Yeah, I so think so. And, 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 and my, my specific expertise here is more in private boards, um, but some large private boards and some very small private boards. So um, at the larger end, I think we're seeing a shift now away from um, perhaps more of a governance focus towards more of a risk focus. Uh, but also a shift now to really understanding the disruption thesis that particularly larger companies can either embrace or be attacked. And so that, I think that has a large part to play, Alan, in board composition nowadays. So in getting um, the right uh, blend of skills and capabilities and obviously the right diversity across the board to ensure that you're thinking about those threats and opportunities as they evolve. But governance is still a major talking point. And, and I, 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 my sense is we're moving through that a little bit now. And I think the regulatory frameworks around a lot of industries are starting to define themselves a lot tighter now, you know, particularly as we're seeing in the, in the, in the financial sector at the moment. Um, so that's giving boards an opportunity to shift away the dialogue a little bit from governance to, to um, understanding more about disruption. The big issue that we all face right now, and in fact, I, I did listen to um, your previous podcast guest, Michael Ebert, who I know very well as a personal friend who talks about the speed of change and the speed of everything going on around you now. And that's a big issue for boards to embrace, right? Because you just don't have time to dwell anymore. The moment you do, it, you, there's someone coming behind you, right? So staying on top of industry, staying on top of regulatory, of strategy is quite a task, actually. I mean, board directors 
Many people think that it's an easy life, right? It is not. It is a very fulsome career. It's a very colourful and enjoyable career, but you've got to work very hard to maintain fluency across all those issues. How are we responding here in Australia to the demands of the global internationalisation? You know, are we are we parochial in our approach, or is there is there a sense that we are taking on the world? Oh, I think in the in the uh, in the te- in my space in the technology space. There are no barriers anymore, right? So, you know, global markets are available and accessible. Uh, so people should be thinking about that uh, from day one. Um, so the market opportunity shouldn't just be constrained to the Australian market opportunity. Sometimes it's sensible to, to develop capability and proof of concept in the Australian market and then look to globalise at that point. But as, as venture capitalists, we simply unless it was a hugely material market, we generally just don't look at opportunities that are constrained to the Australian uh, geography. Right? We look for opportunities that can be validated here, but can be taken to other markets. So the, the issues around thinking globally are usually around, um, again, in my space, timing. <clears throat> when do you do that? How do you do that from a management structure and capital structure standpoint? And how do you manage the risks of doing that when you're moving into new markets? So typically, if you move into Western markets like US, UK, that's a little bit easier. If you're moving into markets like we've seen a lot of carnage, for example, for companies that have gone into China and come out with their tails you know, between, between the legs because they just don't understand the, 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 the very different culture of, of, of operating in those markets. So you know, being risk mitigated along the way, risk sensitive, but being very focused that you know, the world's a big place. Right? And the bigger the addressable market, the better for everyone. You talked about people coming to you for advice as a mentor. Uh, And I can just understand from the last 10 minutes why they might do that, Martin. But um, did you ever have a mentor? And if so, who was that individual? And, uh, you know, what did you take from that experience? I I haven't had a mentor. It's a regret that I didn't have a mentor. And I would encourage um, anyone to have a mentor. And I, I didn't do that largely for a number of reasons. I think largely because I was changing careers mm-hmm. quite frequently. Mm-hmm. So there was sort of a lack of continuity. And two, because I was also changing geographies, right? I was living in Australia and <clears throat> then living in the UK and back here again. And I was in Perth for a while and then in Sydney. And so there's always that kind of break of, of, of continuity, if you like. Um, there are people that I use as sounding boards, but I don't. I, I didn't have quite the mentoring relationship that I enjoy now as a as a mentor to people that that, that have asked me to, to to assist them. I enjoy that very much, actually, and I do quite a bit of that now. Uh, so I think it's important. Uh, I think there are times in uh, my career when I would have benefited from. Um, a perspective different to mine. Mm-hmm. Um, I did. I did have actually. There's an interesting anecdote. So when when I was invited back to the comment about Optus, and when I was invited to be um, the acting managing director and into the permanent role, I, I did have a friend who actually, funnily enough, is from a, a large recruitment firm, and I did talk to him about that. And he had this very interesting metaphor for me. He said, "Martin, it's a bit like a train coming into a station and." you know it's a good train, but you're a bit fearful about jumping onto the train, but the doors are about to close and the train goes away. You just don't know if there'll be another train. And you might be waiting for a while. So if you think that you're reasonably well-shaped for that, 
get on board. Because mm. I, I was lamenting to him at that point that I just felt that I didn't quite have the level of experience. You know, I was 36, right, and suddenly being tasked to run a very big business. And, and there was a degree of uncomfortableness about that, a little bit of anxiety, if you like. And he, he gave me some compulsion to get on. So he, that was a mentoring moment, but he wasn't a mentor in kind of a wider sense, Alan. But, um, so look, I mean, mentors are very important, very valuable. Um, wish, I had, wish I had done more early. Martin, if you weren't be doing, if you weren't doing what you're doing now, what would you be doing? I'd be doing what I do now. <laughs> I wouldn't be doing anything else. Um, it's taken me thirty years to kind of find find my sweet spot. Um, I love what I do. Right, it, it, it's terrifically um, uh, stimulating. Every day is a learning experience. I meet, you know, I've had already three meetings today with founders of companies and new industries that I'm learning every minute. Right, so and I'm applying the judgment now across my. The, you know, the, the, the whole potpourri of my career, right? And I'm bringing elements into play. I, I get some right, I get some wrong, right? I mean, none of us are, are perfect investors in that sense, but um, it's it's an absolute delight and a joy. So to be honest, I'll do what I do again. How I get there, I might have done differently. Yeah. Um, I think I, 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 you know, arguably, possibly took a bit too long to find my, my natural home, um, but I don't have any regrets about that. I think what a lot of people might not realise is how global your uh, your work is? Yeah, look, we you know Australian, uh, no, I've you know I'm an investment partner in a US venture fund, and we're investing in um, global companies, and we have uh, portfolio companies in the US, one out of Estonia, um, one in Australia. Um, so that I do travel quite extensively as a result of that, and I I get uh, familiarity with um, business models and markets, you know, in markets outside of Australia. I find that fascinating. You know, they're um, some terrific examples there are companies that just have huge addressable market opportunities and, and really innovative and disruption technologies. So, you know, I'm blessed to be able to be part of that dialogue. And, and uh, that means, unfortunately, the downside of all of that is that in any given day, I have to go from the fintech market to the ag tech market to the media tech market, to, and I've got to be reasonably fluent in all of that. So you have to have a um, both a mindset to be able to do that. You've also got to be very structured in your day-to-day management. So um, it makes it hard. It makes it very fulsome. So, you know, I'm 24-7. I have calls at all sorts of hours of the night and day, and, and that's okay, right? So you just got to live the moment. It means I don't have a lot of time for other things, which yeah. is a little bit of a, mm-hmm. uh, a detriment, I think. But, but you know, whilst I enjoy it... What do you do to have wine? <sighs> glass of wine, usually. <laughs> uh, watch football. So, um, drive Riley cars still? Drive, no, I gave that up in 1997, oh, actually, right. and, and after I'd crashed a few. And, <laughs> right. and, and my There's wife a story said, going around about you that you do yoga, but you hate wearing Lululemon. Yeah, there you go. So you've heard that one. So yeah, I, I did say that once. It's quite famous. <laughs> Um, I do a bit of yoga. Yeah, I find it very um, uh, therapeutic. I find it, you know, it's just terrific just to be able to switch off the grid for a bit. And sometimes an hour is all you need, right? right. I just got back, I just got back from Vanuatu for two weeks on a a vacation with my family. And, and, you know, the first few days I was incredibly uh, testy because the Wi-Fi was terrible and the mobile reception was terrible. But then when you eventually kind of accept that for what it is, then I actually relaxed and it was okay, right? I went snorkeling and kayaking and life was good. So um, so I find it hard. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'd love to um, uh, spend more time with the family. We all do, right? I mean, that's something we all aspire to. But I make a point of doing as much as I can. I've got two teenage children, you know, terrifically good kids, going through school. One's about to do her HSC. 
you know, and you spend as much time with them as you can because you just don't know how many more years I'll be with you. And yeah. I love that moment, right? So very family focused. Love travel, love food, as you yeah. know, Alan. Yeah. And um, but I don't have any hobbies as such. Football, Football. Yeah. but I'm not a very good player. Well, I wasn't. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I, I, I thought I'd learn an instrument. So you're a guitarist, right? So used to be. Um, so I thought I'd learn guitar, but of course, in my typical characteristic, I think I can go from you know, from zero to being Robert Plant in a year. And I get very frustrated that I'm not. So I give it up. You know? Instant gratification. Absolutely. Why can't I play this big song right now after yeah. I've only had one he week of lessons? Yeah. Martin Bagnish, thank you very much for coming in today. It's been a delight and a pleasure as always. Pleasure. Thank you for having me, Dave.